We're in the Gospel of Mark chapter 5 this morning, so if you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 5. I want to encourage you to open your Bible with expectancy. God is with us. His Word is living and active and powerful. And so we open it with expectancy to hear from the one true living God. Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 1. This is God's Word. (coughs) They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus. And they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said, "Go go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis, Decapolis, how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This is God's word. Would you pray the underlined portions of this prayer along with me? Our Lord and God, now as we hear your word, fill us with your spirit. Soften our hearts that we may delight in your presence. Sharpen our minds that we may discern your truth. Shape our wills that we may desire your ways. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In Mark chapter 4, Mark began to show us the, the parables of Jesus as he was speaking to them in parables. They were parables that talked a lot about the, the power and the authority of the kingdom of God. But we've moved from parables in the gospel of Mark now to where we're not just hearing parables about the authority and power of the kingdom of God. We're seeing the unleashing of that authority on things around Jesus. The last chapter, we ended with this unleashing of kingdom authority and power upon a storm where Jesus is asleep in the midst of all this chaos and then unleashes a few quick words and the storm, which was so loud and roaring around them, quieted down. In chapter 5, he begins by unleashing that kingdom authority and power on another kind of storm, a storm that was raging inside of a man who was possessed by unclean, an unclean spirit. And this story of a man who's possessed by what we know as legion shows us a lot more about the power and authority of the kingdom of God and its 
one true Son, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It shows us how Jesus' power and authority are poured out, not only just as a display of power, but they're poured out for rescue and deliverance. You see, Mark especially focuses in his gospel on kingdom authority, and he does that so not that all readers will just see the raw power and the greatness of God. He does want that, but he wants people to know Jesus. He wants them to not only know his power, but to know him and to follow him and to see him as the true son of God, not just so that we'll be awed by his mighty work, but that we might be transformed by that work ourselves. And so Mark chapter 5, after quieting a storm, Jesus and all who were aboard his boat miraculously make it across the sea to the other side. In verse 1, it says, they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. Put a map up here so you can see kind of where we're at. They started around Capernaum, and they crossed the sea, and they're over here by what we could call Gergesa, we think. Somewhere over there in the Decapolis region is where they have landed. Now, there is really no reason to go to this place. This is not like a strategic trade route. There's not like people, relatives that Jesus needs to go over there and see. There's no particular reason that Jesus needs to go to this location. This is not a location that he would likely go to if he were just a normal Jew in everyday life. They, They wouldn't have gone there. There would be no reason to have gone there. This is a place that is predominantly a Gentile area. It's filled with all sorts of things that the Jews would have considered unclean, as you'll see. There's unclean spirits, there's pigs, there's tombs, place of the dead. There's really no reason to record this story, record that he came across the sea to this place, except that it was Jesus that was coming to this place. And we see from the very beginning the intention of Jesus. He's the one who wanted to get in the boat and go across the sea. He's the one that wanted to land at this place. He wants this encounter. He wants to show mercy. That's why it's recorded. That's why Jesus goes. The Son of God came with kingdom authority. He came with kingdom power over all things, seen and unseen. And he extends this kingdom authority and all all his kingdom power to not just things around him, but other places as well. He starts extending its reach even further. You see, the good news of the kingdom of God had arrived in the person of Jesus. In him, the Son of God, the good news has arrived. And he's going to spread that as far as the curse is found. And this is a representative of that as he goes to this predominantly Gentile area. So they travel across the sea to an interesting place, especially from the the twelve's perspective. They would have thought this place a, a bit strange to go to. It's a predominantly Gentile area full of unclean things and full of a man with an unclean spirit, as you see in verse 2. When Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Now, Jesus is not new to encountering people with unclean spirits, to dealing with people who've been possessed. We saw this in chapter 1, that he comes to Capernaum in the synagogue, and there comes a man to him with an unclean spirit. And he commands that unclean spirit and obeys him immediately. And even calls him son of the most high, or the holy one of God. We know who you are. You're the holy one of God. In, ch- in verse 34 of chapter 1, he, it says and records of Jesus that he was casting out many demons. In chapter 3, you might remember that the crowds were gathering around Jesus. That they were all pressing in because they knew that he could cast out demons. So they were bringing people to him or they were coming to him so he would do that very thing. And he was doing it. And all along the way, these demons that are being cast out are rightly identifying him. They're calling him the son of God. And so, are we going to see the same thing here? 
Is this the confrontation that we're going to have here in chapter 5? I mean, here's Jesus again, the Son of God, and an unclean spirit. Surely we're going to have a similar confrontation, but I don't think that we should go there immediately. This is a different place, very different, a lot more hostile. He's not in a Capernaum synagogue anymore. The law, the Torah, is not sitting over in the corner for them to pick up and read. There are not people that are looking at this one true living God and saying, well, we, we believe in Yahweh. It's a hostile area. And this man is described differently from the others that we've seen so far. Here's a man who lives among the tombs. He has an unclean spirit. And in verse 3 it goes on. It says he's lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him. No one could bind him anymore. Not even with a chain. Uh, verse 3 is a really interesting phrase. Even in verse 3 in, in English it doesn't sound right because there's a triple negative. It's like no one. Not ever. Anymore. Not even with chains. It's awkward to say, and it's awkward because there's emphasis being placed here. It just shows the totality of the possession that is in this man. It's no one can bind him any longer. Not even one. Not even with chains. Mark is going into more detail with this man than he went into any of the others. The other ones, we just know they have an unclean spirit. Here's one who lives among the tombs. Here's one who breaks chains. It's different. It's more detailed. In verse 4 and 5, he said he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. And night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. It's a very graphic description, very eerie description. This man is in this state. This man is a danger to himself. He's a danger to those around him. They've tried to subdue him. They can't do it. They can't even keep him safe from himself. He's destroying himself, cutting himself. This is what it looks like to be under the tyranny of the, of the enemy. The enemy who comes to steal, kill, destroy. This is an exhibit of that. Peter says that he is lurking for someone to devour. That's what's happening right here. The enemy is seeking to devour. The tyranny that this man is under has resulted in complete isolation from society. He lives among the tombs. In a sense, his company is the dead, not the living. No one is able to help him. In World War II, in 1940, the British were working on an offensive in France, but they were cut off and forced to retreat in the face of the overpowering German blitzkrieg. A panzer division, several panzer attacks, had cut them off from their advance and forced them to retreat. They became outflanked, and they retreated to an area around the port of Dunkirk. You might have seen this portrayed in Christopher Nolan's film recently. And so these stranded troops, they have the English Channel on one side, and they have German panzers on the other side, surrounding them completely. This was more than 400,000 troops, troops that had been battling, that were weary, that were tired. They were defenseless. They were trapped they were exposed to attack. They were completely cut off and stranded. See, the water at the port of Dunkirk was too shallow for destroyers to land at. They only had one, what they called mole, that stuck out into the water. That was a pier-like figure. This is a mole. Where one destroyer at a time could come to pick up the 400,000 troops that were stranded there. On the beach or in the water. One at a time. Could they, a destroyer, pull up and rescue these people? 
So in other words, the vast majority of the troops were stranded there, trapped, with no sort of rescue in sight. It might be days for them to be rescued. Think of how helpless that would feel as the German army is all around them, flying over the top of them. The water is so shallow that they couldn't get help. And this left most of them sitting ducks, easy prey, who couldn't help themselves. Can you imagine how helpless this would feel? I think the film captures it well. You get caught up in the idea of how helpless the situation is, how dire it is, how hopeless. Now that's where the man with the unclean spirit is. He's cut off. He's exposed. He's completely trapped. He has no way to help himself. He has no one who can help him. That's why he lives among the tombs. There's nowhere else to go. This is his life. Perhaps you know the feeling. You ever felt cut off? You ever felt exposed and helpless? Like you have no way out of what you are in. Now maybe you've never had an unclean spirit or a legion of unclean spirits. Maybe you've never lived among the tombs, but the New Testament speaks eerily of every single one of us. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul tells us that we are dead in our sins and transgressions. Dead. That we follow the prince of the power of the air. That we are completely cut off from help and children of wrath, deserving of God's wrath upon us. And so in other words, our fallen, sinful state is described eerily similar to what we see in Mark chapter 5's description of the man who lives among the tombs. We're part of the living dead, exposed to God's wrath, subject to sin and the enemy's reign with no way to save ourselves. That's the picture of Ephesians 2. While at Dunkirk, the soldiers were trapped, helpless, feeling completely cut off, a fleet of boats was called on to rescue them. The call had gone out from the British to all sorts of people who had boats that were small enough to get into shallow water so that they could pick up the troops that were stranded. Not a fleet of naval vessels, not a big show of power and our military might, but small boats, just big enough to get some people on board. And in probably the best, in my opinion, because it's the only happy scene in the whole film, the best scene is when the commander who's standing on that mole, after sending one to shore out with many troops behind him waiting to get on the boat, he just keeps looking on the horizon and pretty soon he starts seeing some dots poke up. And he grabs the binoculars and looks out and the person next to him says, what do you see? And he says, home. As this fleet of many boats, just private boats, come over the horizon to rescue the soldiers that were stranded. And in Mark chapter 5, as this man is living among the tombs, cutting himself, crying out day and night, a small boat comes across the sea. In that boat, just like those boats at Dunkirk, there's rescue. There's rescue because in that boat is the Son of God, who is the one who can ultimately come to this man and call him home. Rescue was sent for the helpless and stranded. And rescue came in the person of Jesus Christ. And so now as Jesus has arrived, the the stage is set for another confrontation between the Son of God and another unclean spirit. And it happens right away. Verse 2 says, as soon as he steps out on the boat, we pick up in verse 7. 
verse 6 rather. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Now what a strange scene. And Jesus crosses the sea, and this man runs to him and falls down before him. If the unclean spirit knows who Jesus is, and we have every good thought to say that he does, he announces who he is later on, then why not run far away from him? Well, I think that we can look at Jesus and what's going on here. It was his idea to cross the sea. It was his idea to go to this place. It was his power along the way that calmed a storm. Jesus is the one who got them there. It wasn't this man's idea to confront Jesus. He doesn't go looking for him. Jesus comes to him. So I think that the unclean spirit doesn't want to be near Jesus. And so that means that I think the only conclusion that we can draw from this is that Jesus' power compels this man to run to him. His authority compels this man to run to him and fall down before him. His power causes him to run and fall. In the book of Samuel, the Philistines were tormenting the people of God. And at one point they had pretty well destroyed them and they had captured the ark of God. The ark, the the visible sign of God's presence with his people. They took this ark and they put it before their God. In 1 Samuel chapter 5, here's what happens. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And then the Philistines took the ark of God and they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and they put him back in his place. This is some God, right? Like he fell down. So like, all right, let's, let's pick him back up. He'll be all right. We'll give him another round, see if he can take the next one. All right, he'd fallen face downward. And they rose early, but when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Here's a so-called God before the visible presence of God and somehow falls down in the middle of the night. In other words, there's a superior power here. Something else is working and being symboled and signed here. The psalmist says in Psalm 66 verse 3 that so great is your power that your enemies come cringing before you. Is that not Dagon? Is that not Mark chapter 5? All the powers of Satan's kingdom, they fall down before the one true living God. Mark 5, that's what's happening. The unclean spirit used to carry this man to the tombs. Drove him out of society. Now he runs and falls down before Jesus. Very different activity than what he's used to. And I think as he runs and falls down that we have to know this isn't a willing bowing down. He's not bowing down in adoration. It seems a lot more defensive, reluctant, especially given what we see in verse 7 and 8. He cries out with a loud voice. He's not happy to be there. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? And then he begs him, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Because he was being told, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Jesus, this man who had been surrounded by so much confusion regarding his identity on, in his ministry, is never surrounded by confusion on his identity around unclean spirits. They identify him rightly so very quickly. They know who he is. This 
unclean spirit knows Jesus, knows him as the superior, knows that he has to obey him, and so he's trying to get his request in. Like, please, do this for me. Don't torment me, he says. No, this is a statement of his subjection. In other words, you have the power to do whatever you want to me. You have the power to torment me. His saying, don't torment me, is his acknowledgement, Jesus is Lord. Not in a willing and adoring, adoring way, but knowingly that Jesus is judge. And Jesus doesn't torment him. Perhaps it's not time for him to meet his judgment from the judge, but rather Jesus replies with a question. Verse 9. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And Jesus He has regard for his audience, for the man that is possessed by an unclean spirit, for the disciples who are with him, for those who would read Mark's gospel. And so he asks his name. What is your name, he says in verse 9. He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. We are many. Jesus didn't need his identification. He didn't need his name so that he can control him. He didn't need to write his name on the most wanted list, like, oh, Legion, you've been doing this for years. Let's put you on the top of the list. Maybe we'll revisit you. No, he does it so that he can show us and and, and uncover some of his power. He does it so that we can hear it, so that we might see the greatness and glory of Jesus and how powerful he is. You see, this man doesn't just have a spirit. He has many, legion, a multitude. We don't even know. There's not a number given here. We can only guess. He kills 2,000 pigs, so maybe 2,000. It's a lot. A multitude of demons are taking this man, and they're powerful. They've driven him out. They can break chains. He lives among the tombs. He's cutting himself with stones. Like this is a a multitude of powerful demons. And so if you need to be awakened to the fact that the enemy is not only has lots of numbers, but is also powerful, like here's an example. He's alive and doing a lot. But knowing that this man is possessed by legion doesn't help Jesus now, okay, I know what name to call when I tell you to leave. It helps reveal and further reveal for all who would read Jesus' power and might. It will help show the extent of Jesus' authority and reach as he extends his mercy to one who has been possessed by such a strong and mighty foe. See, Jesus' power and authority are so great that they extend not only to the Gentiles, but to a legion of demons. In verse 10, we read that he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. And now a herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank and and into the sea and drowned in the sea. Man, what a strange scene. And Mark gives us almost, other than just the, 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 the raw events themselves, he doesn't give explanations doesn't give a lot of detail. He just keeps moving on. You have to think, like, why does Jesus allow this? To say, yeah, just go in those pigs and they're all destroyed. And the answer is we don't really know. We don't have an answer. Here's what we do know. That legion caused 2,000 pigs to drown. I think this shows legion's power. I mean, have you ever tried to herd pigs? Some of you have had some experience with pigs. Like, they're not the easiest things to mess with. 2,000 of them together? Like, driving all in the same direction, that can't be easy. Legion does it right away. No issue. Shows his power. It shows more than that, though. It shows more than just his power. It shows his purpose, I think. What's Legion's purpose? Destroying. Destruction. This is an enemy that's set on destruction. It's been this way for a long time, and that's exactly what happens here. But also what happens is with a nod, 
With just an ascent from the Son of God, Legion is removed from the man. This shows Jesus' power. That the one that would drown 2,000 pigs could be controlled by the nod of a head from the Son of God. It also showed Jesus' purpose. Here's one who came to save. Here's one who came to deliver. Here's one who came to rescue. Now, this is a small town. And when 2,000 pigs die in a small town, that's a significant financial loss. It's significant news. And as you know, in small towns, news spreads fast. 2,000 pigs don't die in a small place without everyone knowing about it very quickly. And in verse 14, that's what happens. The herdsmen, they fled. And they told in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And when they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed in his right mind, they were afraid and those who had seen it described it to them, described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. They come, and their reaction is fear. They're afraid. It's a similar to reaction to what the disciples had in the boat when Jesus calmed the storm. They were afraid. There's the same reaction here. They saw Jesus' power displayed. They saw his authority when he calmed the storm, and they were scared. Here the people see his authority and his power on display as he removes legion as the pigs die, and they're afraid. When even the smallest rays of the greatness and glory of God shine, even a little bit, people are afraid. They're scared. They fall down sometimes, as we heard last week, even as if they were dead. What can man do? What man can do what Jesus just did? Who can stand up after being asleep and say to a storm, be quiet? Who who can nod his head and make 2,000 demons leave one man and go into pigs and run off the cliff? Jesus did what no one else could do. Remember the triple negative of verse 3? No one could do us, not ever, not even chains could hold him. Jesus nods and it all happens in an instant. Now, driving 2,000 pigs into the sea is, is power, right? The power of legion is displayed there, but the one that can control the 2,000 that drove them in the sea shows even more power, frightful power, scary power. It's frightful unless it's good. In verse 15, what do we read about the power of Jesus? That it wasn't just 2,000 pigs that went off the cliff. He saw this demon-possessed man who had been sitting there now, in his right mind. There's no harm to this man anymore. Like, he is, he's better. The, the legion has left, and he's in his right mind. Like, this is a picture of salvation here that Jesus has put before us. You were owned and possessed by something, and now, just at the nod of my head, you are in your right mind, sitting before me. Salvation has come. Salvation has come to this Gentile land, to this demon-possessed man. A miraculous work from God has moved one from death into life. And so this is what we do when that happens. We start the celebration. Like we, we get excited. Right, here come some people that have heard about this, and they might have seen him. Now they're seeing him for, in his right mind for the first time in maybe ever. Family and friends, people who know this man. They've probably tried everything. They tried every doctor. They tried chains. Nothing worked over and over again. How long did they do this? And here for the first time, here he is in his right mind. He's safe and whole before these family and friends. So they should have this rush of relief and thankfulness and excitement. And they want to throw a party, right? In verse 17, 
says that they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. They're filled with fear. Not excited. They're fearful. And their fear leads them to beg Jesus to leave their area. Please go away. Their fear is based off what they were told and what they see. Verse 16, they were told basically two things. Here's what happened to the pigs. Here's what happened to the man. And it's clear that one of those acts stirs them more than the other. One of those acts is a bigger deal to them than the other one. Why beg Jesus to leave if what stands out most is the salvation and health of this man who's been tormented for years? But if what stands out the most is the pigs, then why would they want him to stay? It might have seemed that Jesus and his power were opposed to them. Because if what stands out most is the pigs, then you have a net loss. Huge loss. One man versus 2,000 pigs. And so their request for Jesus to leave shows that they felt the loss of pigs more than the gain of man. And maybe we're not too different. What stands out most to you in this story? As you read it this week or even this morning as we've read it a few times, what stands out the most? What's staggering to you when we read this story? And be slow and honest with your answer. Is it the man or is it the pig's? Does the amazing loss of the pig strike us? Does it offend us? Does it embarrass us? If you're like me, you're trying to figure out, how do I explain that Jesus caused the death of 2,000 pigs? That's a huge financial loss. Why in the world? I'm trying to figure out an explanation that will get Jesus off the hook for this. While I tried to do this and think of how to get Jesus off the hook for the pigs, conviction hit me because I never even thought to get offended that a legion of demons had possessed a man, made him live isolated among the tombs, apart from all of society, by himself, under the reign of the enemy. That didn't offend me. A legion of demons had laid claim to one that does not belong to them, Made in the image of God. And I'm worried about 2,000 pigs. I ask, why would you let the legion kill the pigs? How can I explain that? All these people are going to come and they're going to listen. So I've got to figure out something. Not, why would you let legion possess a man for such a time as that? I'm asking the wrong questions. One commentator nails it when he says, it's a mark of shameful insensibility in those men in me, maybe in you, that the loss of their swine gives them more alarm than the salvation of their soul would give them joy. Do we share their shameful insensibility? Perhaps like these Gentiles, the loss of the pigs looms larger in our minds than the gain of the man. And as we're worried about trying to figure out how to get Jesus off the hook, Jesus isn't worried about it at all. Do you see this? Mark doesn't explain it at all. None of the Gospels do. They don't explain it. Jesus doesn't care about being let off the hook. He doesn't care about offending our sensibilities. That doesn't bother him. He doesn't need to be let off the hook. We don't need to explain it away. He can handle it himself, and he doesn't say a word of explanation. Here he is, though, sitting with a man in his right mind who he just delivered from years of destruction and torment. 
That's what looms large to him. Jesus had told them, in the Gospel of Matthew, we see this. It's probably happened before what happens here with this man. He told them in Matthew chapter 6, verse 26, he said, Look at the birds. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they are? In Matthew chapter 10, he says something similar. He says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. I love that. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Or 2,000 pigs. And Jesus is showing. They are feeling their worth. The soul is feeling its worth. Jesus is showing that one man is worth... At least 2,000 pigs. He saves this man, and the man sits down with him. Because to Jesus, this man was worth more than this man even knows. More than the crowd even knows. We know a little bit more, right? Not just 2,000 pigs. The very loss of the Son of God brings about rescue. Oh, the soul ought to know its worth. The question is, is, do our values align with those of Jesus here? Or would we ask Jesus to leave too? Be slow to answer. Would we ask Jesus to leave? Here's the good news. Is that even if our values aren't aligned, Jesus still values us. And the the man that's possessed by demons doesn't want to come to Jesus. He doesn't value things rightly. He's not aligned with Jesus. He's not looking for Jesus. Jesus came to him. He came to rescue him. He came to deliver him because he loves him. And he loves us that way too. That's how he loves us. He came to rescue us from our sin while we're in our sin. We didn't get better and then he come to us. We were still sinners when Christ died. He loves us in that way. Here's the biggest tragedy of the day. 2,000 pigs is a major loss, but the biggest tragedy is that they're asking Jesus to leave. The biggest tragedy of this whole situation is that not just that their values don't align with Jesus' values, the biggest tragedy is they don't value Jesus himself. They've missed him. They see his power, and they fear him wrongly. The display of Jesus' power often produces this kind of effect. It just happened on the sea where they see his power and they view him wrongly and they fear him wrongly. Jesus shows tremendous power here in controlling legion, healing this man, and they see it. They see him, though, not as one who can come and bring salvation, but as a threat. If he could take out 2,000 pigs, what kind of our lives will he destroy? They see him not as a savior who can rescue a man, but as a threat who who could cause the destruction of their way of life. They only see raw power. They don't see mercy in it. They don't see the one behind it. They miss the rescuer. Church, let's not make that same mistake. Let's not miss the rescuer. When we look to Jesus, we need to know his power. We need to see how great and glorious his authority is and how far it extends. Not only just to places, but to people and legions of demons. We need to see his power in all those situations, but we need to not miss his mercy. 
He wants to be known. He wants to save. He wants to rescue and deliver. Don't just see his power and not see him as a rescuer. Don't see him as the judge and not the one who's a savior. Let's not make that mistake. Not all in this story do. If you look in verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. A different kind of begging. This man knows his rescue. He knows Jesus as the rescuer. He knows him as the savior and he begs to be with him. You see, Jesus' authority that was on full display for this man as well is a display of authority and power that is full of mercy. That's actually for this man. It's not threatening to him. It's saving to him. It's what delivers him. He wants to be with him. He wants to know this man and be around him. To this man, Jesus is not a threat. He is Savior. He knows that Jesus didn't work against him in his way of life. He worked for him. He had no life. He was in the tombs. Jesus delivered him. He worked, I love that phrase, for him. He responds then to his own rescue and to the rescue in the most natural way. He just wants to be with Jesus. He's been delivered. He's been rescued. Those who've been delivered and rescued, they want to be with Jesus. All who truly know Jesus, who have experienced his mercy, his grace, his love, desire to be with him. If you don't desire to be with Jesus, then I'd have to say you need to question yourself to see whether you really have genuine faith in him. Because those who have real faith want to be with him. Now that desire is a result of a heart that's been made new by God. It doesn't come from ourselves. It comes from God. And then all of a sudden we want to be with God in a way we've never wanted before. That's who's been rescued from tyranny Those who are delivered want to be with him. Now, this desire to be with Jesus, it may wax and wane like the moon. But in general, for Christians, the trajectory is up. There's more desire as we go along. The more we know Jesus, the more we want to be with him. Some of the most beautiful words ever spoken in the scripture were spoken by Jesus on the cross. You remember he was crucified along two criminals. One of them was taunting him and the other says, you need to stop. This man doesn't deserve this. It's quite a confession of faith from a man who's hanging on a cross, looking at Jesus hanging on a cross. And he says, when you come into your kingdom, he's saying Jesus is the king, and he's got a kingdom in the future. Remember me. And Jesus says what? You know those words, today you will be with me in paradise. What's the most beautiful words there? I would contend that with me are those words. The more we get to know Jesus, the more we want to be with Jesus. If we see him as rescuer and savior, deliverer, we want to be with him. And this man wants to be with him. He begs to be with him. But again, Jesus does something we wouldn't expect. He tells him no. He doesn't allow him. I don't know what he said. Like other like, sorry man, this, one's, this boat is full. You're going to have to turn around. Jesus doesn't save him and then zap him into heaven. He sends him. Verse 19. He did not permit him, but he said to him, go home to your friends. The the phrase is, go to your people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. 
Like church, we, if, we're, if we're people who have genuine faith, we may desire to part to be with Jesus. Paul did. He says, I really want to go be with Jesus. That would be better. We should want to be with Jesus finally and fully. Maybe we should even beg him for him. Please let us go be with you. That's natural if you've been delivered from tyranny and death to want to be with the one who's rescued you. But it is not to be if we have breath in our lungs. Jesus doesn't save us and then just wrap us up in his arms in heaven. Say, just stay here with me. He saves us and he sends us out. He sends us out to proclaim what God has done for us. This man has a job to do. He's been commissioned. It's interesting. It's the first commission in the gospel. It's a commission to a Gentile, two Gentiles. Go. Tell them all that I've done for you. Tell them what has been done for you. The mercy that God has shown to you. And that's our task as well. Just go. Tell them what God has done for you. Tell them about his mercy upon you. Here we have an ordinary man, and he is sent out by Jesus. He doesn't have further training. We don't think that Jesus was there for a long time. He saves him. He sits him down, talks to him for a while, and then he sends him out among a Gentile region. This is, a, this is tough soil he's going to be throwing seed in. He has no unique qualifications, but he's uniquely qualified because he's one of these people, and he knows the Lord's mercy. You see, the ordinary are uniquely qualified because if they know extraordinary grace, extraordinary mercy, then they are uniquely qualified to go and just proclaim what God has done for them, the mercy he's had upon them. If this mercy is known, if what the Lord has done for us is known, then we should then do the same, go and proclaim. Not because we're uniquely qualified in any way, but we know unique grace. Grace that only comes from God. Mercy that only comes from God. And that's what this man does, verse 20. He went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. There's a difference in this man. He begs to be with Jesus, and the crowd, they beg Jesus to depart. And the difference is that he knows that God's power and authority have been worked for him. For him. He knows them to be for him. The kingdom power and authority that was displayed in the story are not given just for the purpose of wowing the crowds. They're not meant to just be like, look at that great power. They're meant to point us to who is showing this power that we might see his mercy and his love and as the one who came to rescue. They're meant to draw us to the one who can show us mercy. They're meant to call us to the one who can ultimately call us home. Jesus didn't come just to display raw power. He wants to be known. He came to seek and save the lost. Do you know what the Lord has done for you. Let's bow in prayer. Jesus Christ, Some of us do not want to be with you. And they might be here today who are afraid of you because they know that you're powerful and they know that when you come into someone's life, you come to rule. 
and you come to change things and to know you, to belong to you, is to lose many things, most of all ourselves and our own glory and all the things that we pursue in this world to make much of ourselves. Probably not 2,000 pigs, but something. And God, uh, none of the things that this world has to offer are worth missing out on you. You created us for yourself. You created us for your glory. And so I pray for those today who are here and do not know you, that they would fear your wrath and fear the judgment that they deserve rightly for their sins, but at the same time not run away from you, but run to you because you are not only the judge or the rescuer. You're the only safe place. God, draw them to yourself. And God, hopefully many of us here today, we love you because you have set us free and you've broken our chains and you've brought us up out of the tomb of sin and death and being dominated by our desires and satanic influence and You've set us free, God, and we want to be with you. We want to be with you all the way. Uh, I get so tired of struggling with my sin and of seeing uh, my own heart turn away from you. I get so tired of seeing the world rebel against your will and scoff. and try to act like you're not even there. It makes us groan, and we know, we agree with Paul that to depart and be with you is far better, and we would much rather be directly with you, Jesus. But that's not what you're doing either, and we are with you. You've sent your Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to dwell within us, and you have a purpose for us on this earth, God, to go and to tell the amazing things that you've done for us. Pretty good time to talk about it at Christmas. It feels so empty now listening to Christmas songs on the radio that have nothing to do with anything that matters. And then you hear one that is declaring your glory, and it fills our hearts with joy. Lord, help us speak this Advent season of how you have come into this world to rescue us and set us free. Give us boldness, give us joy, I pray again that we would be like your first disciples who could not stop talking about what we have seen and heard. God, put your good news on our tongues. Let us be your witnesses in this world and draw people to yourself this Advent season. Jesus, let your message go forth clearly in the words that we say. Let your message be adorned with the way that we love people and serve people over this season, God. We love you, Lord. Until we are with you fully, let us be about your work. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.